I don't have a microphone with me. Um, I'm very happy to say that we we're able to get Tom King to be able to come and speak for us at SAC for today. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the poster, but I'll just uh, give an outline. Tom King is a noted novelist, broadcaster, and academic. Some of his most praised works are Medicine River, Greengrass Running Water, The Truth About Stories, and recently, The Inconvenient Indian, A Curious Account of Native People in North America. King became a member of the Order of Canada in 2004 and was awarded the RBC Taylor Prize and British Columbia National Nonfiction Award, both in 2014. King taught Native American studies at the University of Lethbridge in the early 1980s. He also served as a faculty member of the University of Minnesota's American Indian Studies Department and has recently retired from his post as an English professor at the University of Guelph. Um, that being said, on Thursday, this is a plug for SACPA, we have another talk at uh, the Lethbridge Country Kitchen Catering, lower level of the keg, uh, $11, includes lunch. And we're going to be speaking of who will benefit from the sale of AltaLink. And our speaker will be Joe Anglin, MLA. And uh, he is the member of the Legislative Assembly for Rundi Rocky Mountain House Sundry. And he'll be speaking about the sale of AltaLink on that day. That is Thursday, October 23rd, 2014, noon to 1.30 p.m. So... With all that information, I would like uh, for a two We also have a $2 table. If you don't want to have a full lunch, you could have coffee and just sit in the back and be awesome. So with all that being said, I'd like to welcome Tom King to speak for us. He's going to speak about the topic of why is it so hard, the dilemma of social justice. So if you could give him a round of applause. can't hear it's okay, right? All right, good enough. Uh, it's, it, it's great to be back here again. Uh, as Marty said, I taught at Lethbridge from 1980 to 1990, and uh, this still is sort of a, a second home for me, partly because of the, of the bloods and the blood reserve. Uh, matter of fact, the reason I'm here today, I normally don't do public speaking anymore. I go on book tours and I do reading, but I discovered that when I went around doing keynote addresses that I very quickly got tired of hearing the sound of my own voice. And if you do those things, you've got to talk for 45 minutes or an hour. And quite frankly, I became bored with myself after about the 15-minute mark. So I stopped doing it. But there are still people in the world who can call me up and ask me to do something like this. And the Heavyhead family is one of those. Uh, it's pretty hard to turn them down. Now, it's not Marty, no. <laughs> I could turn him down flat. But he is Martin Heavyhead's son. And that I can't refuse. So, um, for those of you who might know my work, you know that I generally try to take uh, serious topics and handle them with humor. The 
reason is simple. It's that uh, if you're dealing with something that's really dead serious, uh, something that might even be appalling or grisly or whatever else, uh, it is hard to take that on straight. Uh, if you do, generally people turn off. They turn away. They can only handle so much. I learned that I learned that early on in my career was at the University of Chico, uh, pardon me, University of California at Chico. Uh, the st- somebody knows that place? I applied to do my master's there. Oh my God. <laughs> right along Little Chico Creek, which makes no sense at all because Chico means little in Spanish, so it's a little, little creek. Um, I was there and I was a native activist uh, in my younger years and we were asked to sit on a panel at one time. And so myself and a Mohawk guy said, yes, we'll do it. And, I mean, we were, you know, long hair. And my hair, when it gets long, is not particularly impressive. It gets sort of curly and kinky, and it sort of stands out from the side of my head like a helmet. I looked like a latter-day Darth Vader. Uh, but I had my beaded belt buckle on, so no one would mistake me for an Italian. <laughs> and we got up on the stage with two guys from the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the States. And we made our presentation, and I, I must say I was very dramatic. I beat the podium, I raised my voice, I had statistics at my fingertips I could just snap out there to show that uh, the condition that Native people were facing was uh, not much better than it had been a couple of hundred years ago. And then the BIA guys got up in their suits and their ties, and they had their pie charts, and they had their uh, PowerPoint, although it wasn't PowerPoint at that point. And they showed that how things had gotten so much better. And so we had this give and take back and forth, you know, the wild, angry Indians and the very calm, conservative BIA guys. And afterwards, when we came off the stage, the woman who had organized the talk, as the, as the two BIA guys came off the stage, she shook their hand and handed them an envelope. Shook their hand, handed them an envelope. And so I came off and I nudged Richard in the ribs and I said, that's an honorarium. As I came off the stage, she shook my hand but no envelope. And so I held onto her hand. <laughs> After I give it back when she gave me my honorarium. And I said, uh, that envelope that you gave those two guys, what was that? And she says, oh, that, that was an honorarium. And I said, okay. I said, where's ours? You know, Richard and I did the same thing they did. We were up on that stage doing our bit. And she was, she was embarrassed. But she said, well, come on, guys. She says, after all, she says, they're the experts. And I said, what are we, the entertainment? And I realized that's what we were. We were the entertainment. We were there to yell and shout and raise a little bit of a fuss and perform, perform the activist, perform the angry Indian. And I said to myself, you know, that's not going to happen again. I'm not going to be entertainment. But I also discovered that a little bit of humor goes a long way, that you can't beat people up unless you make them laugh. And so I, I do like to do that in my work. And no matter what topic I'm taking on, whether it's about Native history, whether it's about social justice, I try to have moments when we can all laugh about really the stupidities 
that we create for ourselves, the situations that, as a society, we put ourselves into, uh, there's no reason for it. Um, my, my partner, uh, she's always trying to help me. And when I wrote The Inconvenient Indian a couple of years back, one of the things she did was she began keeping, uh, taking articles either off the internet or out of the newspapers or out of the magazine and putting them into a box. And this box that she put them in was known uh, in our household as the Institute to Confound and Demoralize. And the reason it was called that was because she started that box off by putting in contradictory articles. You know, things that, uh, for instance, chocolate's good for you. Another study says chocolate's bad for you. Uh, an article that says that red wine will help heart health. And the next month, red wine will hurt heart health. And it goes back and forth like a ping pong ball until you really can't, you know, vitamins are good for you, vitamins are bad for you. Just today in the paper, there was an article that indicated that crash diets, which have been more or less frowned upon for years, are now, might be okay. There's a Milburn study that says they might be okay. So this was the box that was found in the moralize. And she began putting other things into it. And as she did, and as I went through many of those articles, I noticed that a lot of them were in and around the topic of social justice. Now, I'm not a social justice expert. Don't let me fool you. But because I work with Native history, I also sort of play around at the edges of social justice. And because my mother was a single mother, uh, the whole time we were growing up, uh, my father left when I was about three years old. Never saw him again. My mother never remarried, so she raised two boys on her own. I watched her move as a woman in that man's world. And that gives you access to information that you might not have uh, if my circumstances had been a little bit different. So today... I want to just throw out a couple of ideas. And the question that I want to ask is, why, it's, why is it so hard to make the simple changes? I'm not talking about the heavy-duty changes. And one of the other questions I came up with when I was working on the book, The Inconvenient Indian, about Native history, and one of the questions I asked myself was, why is it that whites as a societal group, so it's not pejorative, so nobody should have their feelings hurt, that, that whites should treat Native people so badly over the years as a general kind of rolling history. And I couldn't come up with a very good answer for it until I asked another question, that was why do whites treat themselves so badly? Why is it, for instance, that we don't have, we have a minimum wage in this country, we do not have a living wage? Why is it after all these years that women still make less money than men do? <coughs> when uh, my mother was, uh, oh, maybe in her 30s or 40s, she went from being a beautician to being a numerical control engineer, which was a pretty big jump for her. She went to night school. She worked on math. She went into the aerospace industry. And at one point, 
she was working at a place called Aerojet in just outside of Sacramento, California. And uh, headhunters from the Boeing Corporation came down. And they hired seven people. They hired her and six men as a team. And one of the ways they got them to leave uh, uh, Aerojet was to say that they guarantee everybody a particular wage, the same wage, and a particular rating, which was a numerical control engineer rating. It was a, I don't know what it was. I got no idea. But for my mother, it was a big deal. And so she went. She uh, picked up stakes, and she went from uh, Sacramento to Seattle. And when she got there, she discovered that while the rest of the guys had gotten the wage that had been promised, she had not. And while they had gotten the rating that they had been promised, she had not. And so she brought this oversight to the attention of her supervisor, a nice man. I knew him, as a matter of fact. I worked at Boeing at the same time. And he was sympathetic. But unfortunately, he told her nothing could be done about the matter after the fact. That, but if she worked hard and did well, then at the end of the year, he'd see that she got the salary and the rating she'd originally been promised. So, I mean, she, she waited. And at the end of the year, she went back to that supervisor. And it was to hear her tell the story. She's 92 now. I call her, try to call her every day and talk to her. And uh, one of the nice things about her being 92 and me being on the phone is that, you know, I can, I can ask her for stories. And she's watched enough television in her life. She watches all the reruns of Perry Mason, but she'll take time off to tell me stories that I hadn't heard before sometimes. that have just been sitting around that uh, uh, she had, I, mean, I, I would ask her, you know, what happened here? And she, when she was younger, she'd say, forget about it. You can't do a thing about it, forget about it. Now that she's 92 and she's uh, giving me these stories, so I suppose I can do something about it. Anyway, it was an uncomfortable meeting to hear her tell the story, uh, and evidently the man, poor man, had suffered a brain trauma of some sort because he swore he could not remember the conversation. <laughs> and nor could he imagine why he would have promised any such thing. So my mother patiently repeated their conversation, and if you know my mother, she repeated it verbatim. This used to drive me nuts as a child. I'd say, you know, uh, that's not our, what our conversation was, that she would repeat our conversation verbatim. I'd have to say, okay. Well, the supervisor wiggled one way, wiggled another, and in the end, he said he'd take the matter up with the supervisor. Personally, I think he said this just to get my mom out of the office, but if that was his plan, well, it was, uh, it was a poor one. She waited a month and went back to see him. Another meeting, another excuse. More waiting, another meeting, another excuse. And finally, he told her that he was willing to write her a really good performance report along with a recommendation that she get her promised salary and her promised rating. Only there were more important things on his plate at the moment, so he wouldn't be able to write the letter immediately. So a little over two years after she had moved to Seattle, with those firm promises in hand, she did get the salary and the rating. But that wasn't the end of it. Each year of business at Boeing had been good. Some of the better numerical control engineering teams got bonuses. Of the members on her team, she was probably second or third. 
they evidently had someone in which they could rate the engineers. And she said she was probably two, second, or third in terms of competence and productivity. And that year, the top man got a bonus, and the two other men who were below her on that chart got bonuses and well, bonuses as well, but she did not. Now, her supervisor was a different man at this point, and she went to see him, pointed out that her performance was better than the two men who had received bonuses, and her supervisor told her with a straight face that he hadn't put her in for a bonus because she was a woman and as such did not need it. My mother pointed out she was a single mother raising two boys, though that was a bit of a fib by then. Chris and I were more or less raised. I had just gotten home from three years in Australia and New Zealand. My brother was in Vietnam trying to survive that ill-begotten war. Uh, my mother's supervisor did not suggest that she would be better off married, though I imagine that's what he thought. But I was surprised that at that time he would tell her that out loud that she didn't get her bonus because she was female. So times have changed. You can't say something like that anymore. You can think it, you just can't say it. Now, the sad thing is that these attitudes haven't changed all that much. The work done by women continues to be undervalued and underpaid, while the notion that women are accessories to men continues to roll around. I was in, uh, uh, in Target, you may know about this, in Waterloo. Uh, and there were pajamas that Target had brought in for boys and girls. And the boys' pajamas were in gray, and they had a Superman crest on them, which said Man of Steel. Really nice kind of pajamas, you know. Yeah, the kids like to do Superman. You put on a cape, run around the house, try to fly off a dining room table so through glass doors. And... Uh, and the, the girls' version was in bubblegum pink with a similar Superman crest and a caption that read, I only date heroes. <laughs> can we spell appendage? I suppose we can. And I suppose while we're on the subject of wages and money, we should trot across the street and look at the gap between the rich and the poor in the country. And as it happens, Helen had collected a number of articles on that particular topic in the Institute to Confound and Demoralize. And the beauty of this was all of those articles had a different set of figures. One showed Canada with one of the worst gaps between rich and poor among industrialized nations, while another showed that a gap wasn't nearly as bad as Russia, which stands at 49%, or Mexico, which is around 53%, or South Africa at 57 or Brazil at 60 Most of the articles lamented the causes, uh, global globalization, the loss of countries to jobs with a cheaper workforce, the rising cost of education, and how this has closed universities off to poor, the poor, and along with it, the possibility of upward mobility. Uh, the elimination of the long-form census, massive cuts in income support programs, and, as I said, the refusal of successive governments to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Now, none of the articles used the word greed, but there was one that I particularly enjoyed, which suggested that the most effective strategy governments employ to reduce the number of women and children living below the poverty line is to lower the line. That'll do it. 
every time. Now, after all that reading, I'm still not sure what the exact situation in Canada is. In 2008, the top 10% earned 10 times as much as the bottom 10%. That was six years ago, and I suspect that that figure is widening. Oh, and there was, uh, it was an article that said on the first official working day of this coming year, January 2nd, mark it in your calendars, January 2nd, 2015, Canada's top CEOs will earn as much on that single day, around $50,000, as the average Canadian will make all year. Now, do you know how much money it takes to make you happy? Anybody know? Zero. Zero. Well, that's true. But, but statistically, and in the box of the Institute to Confound and Demoralize, the figure is actually 78,000. That's what the studies show. Beyond 78,000, you don't get much happier. Now, I'm going to be generous about the whole thing and say that you know, it should be 100,000. How many of us make 100,000 in the room? Don't, don't, be, don't be shy. Yeah, okay. How many make less than 100,000? Oh, that's, that's, that's too bad. <laughs> the most chilling comparison was a short study that pointed out that, that the world's 85 richest people have accumulated as much wealth between them as half the world's population. So really, how the hell do you spend that kind of money? What, what do you buy? Well, if you're Tom Moynihan, anybody know the name? He is the founder of Domino's Pizza. If you're Tom Moynihan, you might buy a town. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, Ave Maria is an ultra-conservative enclave in Florida near Naples, completely, completely and utterly controlled by Moynihan, who owns the land the town sits on and governs the same territory in the same way that feudal lords used to manage their kingdoms. You might think that such a thing is impossible in North America. But Moynihan was able to lobby the state of Florida to pass a bill that gave his town special interest status. And in 2004, believe it or not, General Jeb Bush signed Moynihan's bill into law. Then again, I suppose if you know the political and social history of Florida, this might not be as much of a surprise as it might be. In Ave Maria, under the special interest legislation, landowners have complete control of the town. Registered voters who live there have no vote with what laws are passed or how the town is run. And since Monaghan's holding company is the largest landowner, Monaghan gets to be king forever. Now, mind you, if I were a billionaire, I have no idea what I'd do with all that money. Probably something equally stupid. But I digress. The... The last article that I found in the box, and the one that I want to mention today before we sort of have a conversation here, uh, doesn't have anything to do with gender disparity, wage gaps, private towns, and the like. It has to do with the National Football League, and in particular, one of the teams. I, this is an aside, okay? Over, this is an aside. I didn't know this. The National Football League, which makes... $10 billion a year in profits is under U.S. law classified as a tax-exempt charitable corporation. Now, somebody's got to be paying the taxes for those guys. 
And it, it's, it's, well, it's not us because we don't live in the states. But it's the public that takes care of that. I couldn't believe it. The CEO makes $44 million, which is a bit more than my $100,000 limit, but okay. <laughs> but how in the world you can have a private, for-profit organization listed as a non-profit, tax-exempt corporation is beyond me. It happened when the league was, was young. I don't know all the details, but it, just, it has me scratching my head. But that's not what I want to talk about. So we're back from the aside over here. Okay. In the last few weeks, I guess a month now, if you've been paying attention, the old controversy of appropriate sports mascots has come to the front again. There are a number of pro teams that have Indians as mascots. The, the Washington Redskins is just one of many teams in Canada and the U.S. But the focus of the hoo-ha about a month ago was on the Redskins because they're housed in uh, the U.S. capital. Now, native groups, and I was one of them back in the 60s and the 70s, have lobbied for years with no success to get the Redskins to change their name. And Dan Snyder, who is the current owner of the team, has made it clear that uh, uh, he is not about to find a less racially charged name anytime soon. He even invented his own linguistic interpretation of the term Redskins, which Snyder suggested stands, this is the definition of Redskins, is honor, respect, and pride. Uh, not everyone agrees, of course. Uh, Jack, uh, Jackie Pata, who is the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians, describes Snyder as living in a bigoted billionaire bubble. <laughs> if you like alliteration, you've got to love that. Uh, my point here, though, isn't a history lesson. I bring up the matter to ask the single question that is germane to most social justice issues, and certainly some of the ones that I've just touched on today, and that is why is it so hard. I can see where matters such as uh, gender, wage, equality, and the continued disparity between the rich and the poor might be more difficult inequities to settle, but the name of a sports team? Stanford University changed its name from the Indians to the Cardinals, nor are they the only example of a sports team that did that. Now, if I'm being fair, I should point out that the Washington Redskins management has made some small changes. Uh, how many of you know the Washington Redskins fight song? <coughs> Popular thing. No one? That's okay, I do. <laughs> Not too long ago, the lyrics to the team's fight song used to go like this, okay? It was changed in about the 50s, but here's the version. Wish I had my harmonica with me, I could at least get in the key. I can't sing, so bear with me. It goes, hail to the Redskins, hail victory, braves on the warpath, fight for old D.C. And then there's a musical interlude, and then it drops down into a minor key, and the rhythm changes and becomes that old native favorite, you know, from cartoons. <laughs> and it goes, scalp them, swap them, we will take them, big score. Right them, weep them, touchdown, we want heat more. Fight on, fight on, till you have won, sons of Washington, rah, 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 rah. Uh, the teams have dropped the scalp and the rest of the um verbs in the song. Though the term Redskins and Warpath remained in place. So why is it so hard? 
And if it is this hard to do something so remarkably simple, such as change the racially charged name of a sports team, how can we as a society hope to successfully tackle the larger problems we face? And since I don't have an answer for that particularly, this is where our conversation begins. So, let's talk. Why is it so hard? Yes? Okay, wait a minute. You're going to start back. All right, how old are you? What's that? 69. No, you're not the oldest. No, I'm not saying, yes, I'm one of the oldest. One of the oldest, okay. I expected the equality amongst the genders to really take place, especially growing up in the 60s as, you know, the free sexy speech era. But what I find really um, difficult is that the media and video games and Hollywood and all this love the stereotypes, whether it's racial stereotypes, you know, they can just plunk a person in a suit group and you're and that guy, that used to be the Germans, and that was the Russians, and, and various different groups. And now we're, we're in even a worse situation, I think, in the young women. It's a worse situation of stereotyping. You know, all the slut, the, the slut type, and if you're not the slut, I was just with two, two criminal lawyers, women, and they told me if they don't, they, they have to dress quite nicely, and if a, a, criminal, a woman criminal lawyer doesn't look pretty good, the men, the men, criminals, aren't going to even accept them because they want a criminal lawyer woman who looks like a slut. The men are okay, but they want a woman who looks like that, you know, Betty Boop or whatever. So we've gotten worse. I think our society has actually gotten worse in some of these ways. And I blame the media and I blame Hollywood who are making money on these stereotypes. Well, we know, do we not, that child poverty is a bad thing for a society. For a society, for a strong society, child poverty is a bad thing. Matter of fact, matter of fact really, abject poverty is a bad thing because, you know, you just... I come from a very poor background, and I was able to get sort of out of that. And people say, wow, well, if you can do it, why can't, you know, A, B, C, D, and E do it? I got lucky is what happened. I had a mother who really pushed education, but I was raised with kids who didn't have that kind of push, who weren't as lucky as I, I was. So maybe I made it, but another thousand did not. So, you know, I'm, I'm the oddball in all of that. But why is it so hard to make those things? We've agreed that women should be paid as much as men for doing the same job. Equal wages for equal work, equal wages for work of equal value. We've agreed to that. We've had court cases on it. The Supreme Court has actually mandated that that should happen. We have spent years and years and years talking about child poverty and how we're going to end it. And yet it's as bad as it's ever been, and the disparities, the wage disparities continue to roll along. Why is it so hard? even with the agreement of the society as a whole. If I had to raise your hands, you know, how many of you are against wage equity? Probably no one's going to raise their hand. 
maybe water, but you're not going to raise your hand. But the point is that there is a kind of general commitment to that, and yet nothing happens. Yes? There's kind of a dichotomy between this popularization of cultural doomsaying that seems to be more prevalent now, and the availability of social media where people can talk and talk and talk, but don't actually have to do anything back Back in the 60s and 70s, people felt like they could actually make a difference. We did. And because of that feeling, people people did make some difference. Rivers were cleaned up, and and all that changes were made. But now people don't feel that same ability to make changes, and so they just there's this hopelessness. Like I can't make any change. So how can so there's a there's a question of how can I make a difference? I'm just one person that didn't exist back then. I, I also don't know why those people who believed they could make such a difference became these corporate mongrels that they are today. I can answer that question in part, only in part. Uh, in the 60s and the 70s when we were in the streets, and I mean we had, we had good support uh, we really thought we were going to, for Native people in particular, I mean, this was this was the era where the civil rights movement had moved into sort of the ethnic movement, where the ethnic groups themselves began to organize and get together. So you had the Native group, you had the Chicanos, you had the Asians, uh, you had the blacks, uh, and all of these groups organized themselves in a variety of ways, and then we would interact with the other groups. We, we would interact with... Uh, with, with white organizations, churches, uh, uh, just people in the community who were committed to, uh, to equality. And it was, it was a pretty good groundswell. And we really thought we had something going there. But what you have to understand is that people who agree with that, who do nothing about it, except stand and watch, are a drag on that kind of movement. And that movement cannot sustain itself. We have families to raise, we have jobs that we have to take, we cannot stay in the streets for six months, nine months, a year, two years. We get worn out. When Alcatraz was taken over by Native people, uh, there was a chance that we could have stayed on that island forever. And we got a lot of good support. I, I wasn't there at Alcatraz. I came after Alcatraz. But there were movie stars that came out to the island. Jane Fonda came out there. Uh, Jonathan Winters came out there. Buffy St. Marie came out there. And money came to that island to help maintain it. But most of the people who supported that stood on the sidelines and watched. They didn't call for the same change. They didn't put themselves out. And after a while, it was the same people on the island over and over again as it is with many movements. And after a while, you get tired. You get worn out. And if you step away, even if there's someone to step in your place, nothing has happened. What has to happen if you step away, there have got to be five people who fill in behind you. If you step in, there have to be ten who come in with you. If we make change as a society, we all have to be involved in that. And if we're not, because there are people who will object to some of those changes. You know, we know who they are. We know that they're powerful. We know that they've got money. 
What we have is numbers, but if we don't have the numbers, we don't have the commitment, nothing happens. If we do, it does change. This society is our responsibility. It's what we created. It's our fault, if you want to see it that way. Uh, nobody else. I don't blame that on anybody else. I put myself front and center there. You know, this is what we got. Sort of like voting. You get what you vote for. I know you're going to say, well, you know, uh, prime ministers are elected by 25% of the people, 30% of the people. Okay, well then, let's make it the right 25 or 30%, if we can. Yes? To what extent do you think this dilemma is due to our capitalist system? Oh, I think there's a great deal to say about the capitalist system. Uh, I think it's gotten out of hand. I don't, don't think it was a particularly bad idea, but uh, at this point... Uh, as a society, we, we view everything from that profit motive. We look at everything we do is, is it profitable? Uh, I've, I've talked to a number of, uh, I'm going to be talking to RBC wealth managers. Uh, last year I won the uh, Charles Taylor Prize for the Inconvenient Indian. And one of the, one of the things that the Taylor Prize insists that you do is to talk to RBC wealth managers. Now, I've never talked to a wealth manager in my life. I've got no idea what they do. And what, what I'm going to do, actually, is I'm not going to talk to them. I'm going to, I'm going to interview them because I'm curious. You know, what, how, do they, how do they figure out wealth? What is wealth? What is the value of wealth? Uh, what is the value of having that kind of money? I mean... Nobody needs $44 million a year. Nobody needs really a million dollars a year to live a happy, full life. If you do that within your community, uh, you know, I just, and what I don't understand is that uh, capitalism has gotten to the point where everything is about that top end. I mean, we're, 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 we're globalization has allowed capitalism <coughs> to sort of, I don't want to say flourish, because I want to make it sound like a, a disease. It's gotten out of hand. I mean, it's, it's not the capitalism that it was 100 years ago. Or maybe it was, and we just didn't notice it. But I'm not a great, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more in favor of a more societal-based notion. Uh, I get all twisted around on this one because it pisses me off so badly that uh, there are the number of people in, in two countries in North America that are so wealthy. Uh, I don't see any reason why you can't share that and share it with good grace. Uh, I, I see no reason why we can't have a more equitable society. But the minute you say, what will it cost and is it profitable, everything else goes out the window. It's gone. Yes? So then, have we come? Have we come afraid? Have we become afraid of money to speak out? Because money, after all, has a lot of power. And then in the last two elections, everybody wants to make change, but they want somebody else to do it. They don't want to take responsibility for their action. From the day one, the election is called until the election is over. After the election, complain about the same things because nothing changes. 
Some of you may know that I ran federally for the NDP in Guelph. And <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Uh, during the election, one of my mottos was, send me to Ottawa, I'm less dangerous there than I am in the public sphere. <laughs> and that proved to be true. Uh, one of the things that Your question was about, yes, the power of money. One of my great concerns was that I was, as I was running for office, I could see that if I had a lot of money, I could buy a lot of votes. Not because I'm handing stuff out, but because you can just get to the media uh, in a variety of ways. You get newspapers, uh, magazines, television. You can use social media. You can hire somebody, you know, some computer uh, expert. I'm not that. I can barely turn my machine off, but I can hire somebody to begin spitting this stuff out left, right, and center. Uh, that money was really quite handy. But the other problem I, I faced was that many of the candidates were saying those magic words in an election. Those magic words. I will lower your taxes. And I was saying, are you nuts? If you want to have a really good society, then you pay your way. Everybody pays a share of that, and sometimes that share may be a little bit higher than you'd like it to be. But it's not, it's not the amount of taxes you pay within a civil society. It's what you get for those taxes. If you pay taxes and you're buying bombers, I don't think that's a very good use of tax money. If you're paying taxes and you're giving that tax dollar to corporations, to private corporations, to improve their bottom line, I think that's a lousy use of tax dollars. Free education, free transportation, free medical care, I think that's good use of tax dollars. Plowing the streets during the wintertime, I think it's good use of tax dollars. So it depends on what you want to use it for. But when you say the words, I will lower your taxes, it's almost like a Pavlovian response is triggered in your brain. Lower taxes. I don't have to pay for those little bastards going to school because I don't have any kids. And I don't want to pay for sick people because I'm well. You know? And as far as I understand, that is bad economics. That is really bad economics. But the money does get to you. One more point. Two. The last three things you were talking about is wealth management. Yes. Well, I don't know a thing about wealth management. But, but you know what? But then again, I can understand because who wants to govern these people that don't know what's good for them? All would like doing it. Because they want to lower the taxes and live in a poorer state. Well, that's that's it. Yeah. Let's lower it. You get no roads blocked. You get no education. Yeah. Try ignorance. Yeah. That costs money too. Yeah. Well, the joke is, as I was going around. Uh, talking to people, I get to doorstep sometimes where someone would say to me, uh, I want my taxes lower. And I would say, okay, what do you want to cut out? They say, wait a minute. I say, you know, well, you want, uh, won't plow, plow your roads. Okay, we won't plow your road. We'll plow your neighbors, but not yours if we lower your taxes. We'll do it individually. You can get out and pay taxes, and your kids don't get education or health. Is that okay? Hell no, it's not okay. Why should I, you know, not get those benefits? That's what you're not paying for. But to try to 
sort of bring that up in a larger context was almost impossible. It's almost impossible because those magic words, I will lower your taxes, were so, so powerful. So powerful. Yes? I, uh, I can't help but comment. I was an RBC wealth manager. Oh! <laughs> Tell me, what do you do? Well, we take your money and our experience, and we make it our money and your experience. <laughs> <laughs> you sold me. I'll write you a check. That's, that's what the role was. It was to be a sales role. Well, telling you almost didn't come into the room because it had a, a poster on the door from a Scotiabank economist who spoke from 12 till 1. And, and the, uh, I worked there for a while. And the, the model there is you're richer than you think. Um, market over the, uh, the mortgage uh, fiasco not too many years ago uh, when when the, the firms on Wall Street were packaging up these subprime mortgages to make them look like uh, gold bars and selling them knowing that they were worthless knowing that they were worthless selling them to the clients and institutions and individuals and walking away from that completely unscathed I mean, yeah, one of the companies went down the tubes, but uh, for the most part, nobody went to jail. It was it was a massive crime, a massive financial crime, and it just I steal that kind of money. They're going to find me if I go to the blood reserve and I say, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. I, I had a comment on why I think it's so hard, but instead I wanted to ask you a question that will be more valuable for myself. Social justice, why is it so hard? How do you stay motivated to keep pushing? Because I've got kids. I've got two sons and a daughter, and I'll be damned if I want them living in the world that I've lived through. 
I mean, it's, it's, not that, it's not that North America is a bad place, not that Canada is a bad place. It's just that there are some basic changes that I really want to see happen. Uh, one is racism. Still exists in Canada in, in, large, uh, in large portions. Uh, I, I thought we had run out of people to hate. But obviously I was wrong. And I suppose that we could always go around and try it a second time. Uh, but it's because, because I have kids and grandkids. And uh, I think those changes that we had talked about need to be enacted. Every generation seems to have, th have those same concerns. And things keep getting worse instead of better. So, you know, I'm not going to stop. Uh, doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, I probably won't see those changes in my lifetime. Maybe they'll never come. But it may take a crisis, too. This is what I'm waiting for. Some massive crisis to make us change our thinking. I don't know what it is. A meteor from outer space, who knows? Ebola getting loose. Oh, it is loose, isn't it? Uh, who knows what it'll be? Maybe a complete financial meltdown. Maybe all the holding ponds along the Athabasca River are going to collapse. And the Athabasca is going to change direction and pour it right down through Edmonton and into Calgary <laughs> and down into the States. And they're going to say, what the happened? How did the river change its course? And I'm going to say, oh, who knows, but it did. <laughs> And now we've got that. All, all the aquifers are going to dry up. The Oglala Aquifer in the Midwest, uh, we're pulling water out of that lickety split. All of a sudden, that straw is going to come up empty. And all of a sudden, water is going to be more scarce and more potent than oil or gold or anything else. And it's going to lead to a massive social collapse, capitalism coming right down with the rest of the props. I don't, I don't hope to see that. I hope to be dead before then. <laughs> but maybe that's what's going to take. There was a question. Um, so think about why it's so hard. I think about your mother's story. And her employer was quite blunt about the sexism. Yeah. I think some of the reason racism and sexism and classism is still here with us is it's gone to the ground. And so people don't express their opinions openly anymore. So it's much more difficult for us to challenge them. Yeah. Well, they're not, they're not socially acceptable is what's happened. We have made them socially unacceptable. Now we have to make them socially extinct, I suppose. And you had a question. Yeah, uh, go back to history a little bit. Uh, I don't think that much has changed since the Middle Ages in terms of greed. No, probably not. And, uh, and I think that what has been accelerated is by, to our technology. We've been able to we become much more adept at, 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 at exercising that greed. I think the advertising game that's going on here in, North, in, in, in the world, globally now, but certainly here in North America, uh, is just scandalous. The, uh, for example, a good medium like TV that came along, one of the best educational instruments that you possibly have in the society, you hate to turn it on anymore. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the advertising just so overtaken the whole thing. And if you tell a lie often enough, it's the truth. Believe it. And what's happening is that's how these corporations are making so much money. Yeah. And, uh, and you're absolutely right that, the, that lies are being told that we're, we're becoming a society where a child growing up can't help but see the tremendous inconsistencies. Yeah. Uh, even our mayor in Toronto, you know, uh, still, still <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on. You give a thousand instances. 
where any child would say, hell, uh, you know, if I become a better liar, I'll, I'll get a head faster. Yeah. And, and, uh, and try to have cooperation the way we do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I learned very early on in my political career that uh, it was not a matter of speaking the truth. It was a matter of saying something that you thought would impress the voters enough times. And I would say, come on, you know, we can't do that. Uh, I mean, I, it's not that I haven't ever told a lie in my life. I certainly have. But when you get to that political level, I don't expect that type of prevarication, let's call it that, to be part of the culture. And yet it is. I mean... Uh, if you wanted to follow political promises and what politicians said from one day to the next, make your head spin. My mother would wash her mouth out with soap. That's what she would do. I can still taste on that one. One more question. Well, it's not really a question, but more of an Ceremony, they give white hats to special dignitaries that come to Calgary. You mean those, those Stetson cowboy hats? Stetson and stuff. So I'm, I'm watching and I'm part of the audience and I think how, how great that is Tribe just past six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, that's enough of your time, I'm sure. Uh, really, thank you for coming here today. I'm going to be reading from my new novel tonight at seven o'clock in the Student Union Ballroom. I think so. So, if you can make it, I'd love to see your faces there. If you can't, thank you for coming today. Yes, a quick thank you.